0: Out of the box. box. Meet people through their music. Out of the box with Joey Watson.
1: On FBI 94.5. Hello there, FBI radio listener. Joey Watson here. And this is Out of the Box. Every Thursday, from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and talk through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today, Ravi Prasad. Almost eight years ago, Ravi watched his eldest daughter stop breathing moments after she was born. She survived, but it was a moment that changed everything. Up to that point, he'd spent 20 years working in the often vacuous world of advertising, an environment where, as Ravi himself says, the higher you climb, the thinner the air. Skip forward a few years, and Ravi is now the owner of Parliament on King. A cafe set up in his own living room on South King Street in the inner city suburb of Newtown that provides life transforming hospitality training and work for refugees and asylum seekers Ravi a warm welcome to out of the box thanks Joey thanks for having me in here today how did you go how did you go choosing your records today is music <laughs> a big part of your life uh, yeah I listen
0: to uh, yeah, I listen to a lot of music. But it's a tough tough question, Joyce. Like, to choose your favourite stuff. It's like, my favourite stuff changes. depends on the day, the week, the hour, and then there's stuff I come back to. So today was just stuff that I, you know, come back to. Sure. I, I note that, that in your cafe, Parliament on King, there
1: is a notable selection of vinyl records. Are you a are you a conscientious collector, or are, are those just things that have have fallen into your lap over the years? Ah, uh, some collected, some fallen into my into my lap. It's yeah. a, a combination. Ravi, let's go back to the very beginning. You grew up in the quiet capital of Adelaide, South Australia. How do you how do you remember Adelaide as
0: a child in the seventies? Ah. Uh, <clears throat> I remember Adelaide well, so it's not Adelaide that I had a challenge with. It was the time, I think. Sure. What do you mean by that? Well, um, my father came to... My father's an Indian gentleman from Fiji, um, and he came to Adelaide at the end of the White Australia policy. So I grew up as um, uh, a young... mixed race guy at a school where I was the only one I was this small brown guy funny looking guy that wasn't interested in sport called Ravi surrounded by a bunch of people called uh, Ian Brian Warren Trevor Danny Pete and Bob and I wasn't interested in sport so you can imagine how much fun I had (laughs) <laughs> sure, you
1: mentioned that, that one of your first experiences of racism came when you were walking through Rundle
0: Mall as a, mm. as a five-year-old with your father Can you tell me what happened then? Yeah, it was something like five I remember, like Rundle Mall is like the, the Sydney equivalent of Martin Place and I'm walking down Rundle Mall with my dad I don't know quite how old I was and I remember someone was yelling abuse at my father which I won't repeat and I asked dad, I said, what's... What's happening? And he said, nothing is going on, nothing's going on, something like that. Some reassuring words. And he just kept walking. He didn't look. He didn't slow. He didn't hesitate. just kept his head up and he just kept walking. And I didn't understand that until what that was until many years later. I didn't even have a name for what it was until I was in my early teens. Did your father ever speak to you about his experiences of racism? Was no. it something spoken about? No, my father would never complain, never. No one in, in my family would ever complain or say anything about it. It's just not spoken of. And
1: politics entered your, mi- entered your life through your mother. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: tell, me, tell me a bit about her. Oh, my mum's amazing. There's uh, she, <laughs> this is somewhere... In in the archives, there's this footage of this tiny, five-foot-tall, red-headed, like, 22-year-old woman running onto the uh, field during the Springbok rugby tour of South Australia (laughs) with the length of chain, with the intention of chaining herself to the goalpost to disrupt the Springbok rugby match. Um, Mum was engaged with issues of race, race relations and civil society from the very beginning. Wow. Do you think that that informed you to some extent? yeah it did like the the lived experience of growing up in that time um as a mixed race person, and my mum's uh activism at the time did inform my world of view, but it's nothing I acted upon really um it was something I was aware of, but nothing I acted upon until much later in my life
1: within the banality of seventies Adelaide, you found moments of creativity, and for a period you were. Uh, in a band with with my <laughs> former boss and the host of ABC Conversations, Richard
0: Feidler. Uh, can you tell me about that? <laughs> 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 we weren't really in a band. We kept trying to start one. Like, so I saw Richard. Uh, he. Uh, first time. I, w- I, w- I always wanted to be a rock star, and I, but I, had no, I have no real talent. But Richard did. I saw him. He was playing in the school band. He was doing the Star Wars theme. And I thought, ah, I've got a drummer. Because he was the, the brother of my sister's best friend, Jane, and, the, and lived right across the road. So um, yeah, Richard and I used to just hang out, talk about music, play music, try to put together bands in, 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 the, in the back room of our house. Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: and, and one of your first jobs after you finished school was DJing at Club Lim- Limbo in, in Central Alabama
0: can you tell me about that? Game? Oh, well, I, I've talked myself into a whole number of things. It probably wasn't my first job. I did a number of things in in clubs like you know I, I did actually have some terrible bands that that played an awful lot. Um, I had a job. Uh, there was this club called the Blue Room on Melbourne Street, and I used to hang out there and I wasn't working at the time. I managed to convince people that, that they need a human fly as entertainment. So I was a my first proper job in a nightclub was as the human fly climbing around on the scaffolding inside this club called the Blue Room, <laughs> as well as uh, a series of bands. And the band stuff put me in a position to be able to talk club owners into believing I was a DJ. So I used to get some <laughs> DJ gigs. Tell me what what sort of stuff would you would you spin back in the day? Ah, uh, look. I did. <laughs> the problem with me being a DJ is I didn't have my own records at the time because they were expensive. So I'd play with whatever, um, whatever the other DJs had left behind in the booth at the time. And they, these clubs had some great DJs because there was some great music there. So I got to play music that was just <laughs> fantastic. One of which was Genius of Love by mm-hmm. a Tom Tom Club. Can you tell me about this track? Oh, I just loved the track from the first time I heard it. I'd never heard anything like it uh, before, and I. um, uh, I thought the Talking Heads were amazing, but when I heard this, I thought, this is just so exciting. It's such a happy song.
2: Too. Okay.
1: song there was genius of love by tom tom club an early 80s classic brought into the fbi studio today by ravi prasad the owner of the refugee and asylum seeker run newtown cafe parliament on king ravi soon after finishing high school you decided it was time to get as far away from adelaide as possible you fly to la which soon becomes a lone road trip to new york what what drew you to america
0: oh look you know i I had this feeling growing up in Adelaide. Adelaide's beautiful, don't get me wrong. And My mum lives there and I go there and I'm happy and it's just gorgeous. But it, I just felt like such an outsider at the time and I knew that there were like people like me everywhere and I just had to find my people. So um, I had a friend, um, Monica, um, that was from uh, the United States and she'd... Traveled. She was actually in one of the bands called Sex, Art, and Decay. <laughs> and uh, she'd flown back to uh, Los Angeles. And when I'd finally got a, a little bit of money together, I thought, that's it, I'm getting out. So I flew to LA and I found that, she, and I, I landed, called her grandmother's place where she was staying from the airport and found that she'd already moved to New York. But her grandmother said that I could stay. So I stayed in, I think it was Eagle Rock with her grandmother and her sister for a couple of weeks. And um, did some sight. Psych- like I had no money, man. I hitchhiked. No, I got a, I got a bus initially from Los Angeles to uh, I think it was Tijuana, then hitchhiked from Tijuana down to the tip of uh, the Baja Peninsula. Um, hung out there for a while. I had um, <laughs> I didn't know what I, where I was going. I didn't didn't know what I was doing. The guidebooks were terrible. So I was in this telephone office to make international calls Then You had to go to special telephone offices and they'd place the call for you. I was waiting in one of these offices and there was this American there, loud Hawaiian shirt, you know, the the shades, big (laughs) baggy shorts, big dog. I started talking to the dog and he started talking to me. I said, what are you doing here, man? He said, my name is Scott Wayne. I'm writing The Lonely Planet Guide to Baja. And I thought, that's fantastic because I don't know where to go. So we hung out for a while, had a few beers, and then he said, do you want to travel with me? So I travelled with Scott in his van around Baja for, I don't know, a week or so, and he dropped me back at a place called Rosarita, and my mission was then to hitch back to L.A. When I got to L.A., I thought, that's it, I'm going to go to New York and catch up with Monica. Didn't have any money, so I got this thing called a away. Basically, you get a car for free if you relocate the car, and my plan was to drive from Los Angeles to New York. How hard could that be? How far was that? I've driven from Adelaide to Sydney many times. <laughs> of course, I can drive from Los Angeles to New York. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I was listening to the, the radio, but on the way, like um, bigger dynamite had come out. So I, the only, only music I splurged on was buying uh, a bigger dynamite album. Yeah, we'll have
1: to get to that uh, record soon. <laughs> sure. um, but first, I, I I want to pull you on on New York. I mean, this is uh, New York in the early '80s, and slowly you began falling into the seedy world of the New York film industry. Can, <laughs> how did that happen?
0: How did how did that happen to you? Uh, I I kind of like, yeah, I, I wanted to. Uh, I thought I I mean I, I'm in America. I I can get to showbiz. How hard can that be? There was an ad in I think it was the Village Voice f- for internships on this film. So I contacted them, and, and, and I don't know what I, I managed to convince them that I had some experience and got the internship on this, this film. Um, this film was a contemporary remake of a film called uh, War and Peace, it's still available. Um, I probably get it on Amazon. I convinced them I could work on that, so I was did a lot of location work. But there was a tra- it was a trial by fire. I remember the first day I turned up for the internship. I didn't turn up on set. I turned up on the previous day's set, which was this hall somewhere on somewhere in like I don't know. Was, uh, I don't know. It could have been Harlem somewhere. And my job was to clean the hall. So my first day, I didn't even see a film crew. I saw a mop, a bucket, and. It's, Hall full of you know, muddy footprints because it was winter. But pretty soon I, I was led on to set, and after I did that, I said, okay, he's serious, he'll do the work. And, uh, from then on, I managed to convince anyone I connected with that I was in the showbiz. I was doing location and unit work. <laughs> and, and,
1: and, and 80s New York, I mean, show business especially, but 80s New York generally is mm. almost synonymous with its party culture. Were you were you part of that? Did you yeah. fall into that?
0: Yeah, I, I would go to the Palladium and get into the Michael Todd room and the Kit Club, Club and the Milk Bar. I even met Grace Jones and her entourage in the Milk Bar probably on a Wednesday night and ended up, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, partying and shit. Yeah. You, you were
1: chasing Andy Warhol uh, for a while, but yeah. you never quite managed to find so him.
0: So I was living opposite Tompkins Square Park um, on 7th and B in the basement of this orphanage, and just across the park was a, a, a club called The Pyramid. And people I was living with at the time said, Oh, I saw Andy Warhol at The Pyramid. And I went, Oh, man. Then I'd, I'd be at, like, I don't know, I'd like, go, oh, some club and someone said, oh Warhol he was like, and I thought, I'm going to run into him, he was my childhood hero, I was still fascinated by Warhol and his work, but I never ran into him I was always like a day behind or an hour behind who had just left, and I thought oh, that's okay I'll meet him, everyone I know has or bumped into him and then I read in the paper went to hospital I thought oh, that's okay I'll meet him when I get out, I'm not going anywhere and then he died, and I was like, oh no Goodness, while you are in New York Yeah, so I made a pilgrimage, I knew where his studio was I already <laughs> stalked him <laughs> So I made a pilgrimage to the studio and stood outside his door and there was a sign on it. I took a photograph and said the studio was closed today.
1: In the midst of the
0: chaos, you decided
1: to give up on New York eventually and move to London. And it sounds to me, Ravi, that, that London um, seemed to have hit a very different tone to New York. Can mm. you tell me about the the activist community that you fell into when you when you got to the British capital?
0: Oh, Like, like it, So, okay, in New York I felt like... At the time, it felt like if the world had a capital city, it would have been New York. It was so exciting, and I felt like anything was possible for me. But it was something really harsh about it. Everyone had a hustle, and everyone had a hustle. And I just didn't... I wasn't comfortable with a hustle. London was great, but I got there, and I felt like nothing was possible for me. I was just... Some bright guys leaping on somebody's couch. I was trying to find something to do, and I had always been interested in race, race relations, and civil society. And I knew that the non-stop picket to the South African embassy on Trafalgar Square was happening. So I thought, I'll turn up. I turned up there, and it was so small—like any time there there's ten, fifteen people there. I thought, oh man, I'll just just stand here in solidarity for yeah. a while, and then. That's how I joined, ended up joining the non-stop of the South African Embassy on Trafalgar Square.
1: This was the same cause that your mother had had uh, taken up or been arrested for decades earlier. For, yeah. w- w- did she know? Was she proud that you had had arrived in London and taken up <laughs> her <laughs> cause? I
0: told. I think. I think. I. Th- I think Mum was was proud of me. I don't know. I hope so. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, but that's that's what I was there. That was my cause because that was really connected to my lived experience so i felt that i could be there yeah
1: the 80s were also an important time for music in london Mm -hmm. probably the understatement of the century were you swept up in that?
0: Did you enter music culture as you had in yeah. Adelaide
1: as a teenager? Well,
0: I was fortunate enough to find this employment agency that supplied bar staff to uh, festivals and shows. And this was at the time that the rave scene had just burst out of the underground. And I went to one of the first big raves, it was called Westworld, and I think it was at Hammersmith Palais. So I used to work uh, early raves. In fact, when I came back, when I moved back to Sydney... I had this idea that I'd put on Sydney's first rave, and I think I did, taking, a, taking over the old Phoenician club on Broadway. Wow. Um, but, yeah, so I, I managed to work a lot of gigs and see a lot of fabulous bands. I remember when I was, had my punk phase and had like listening to Susie and the Banshees, I got to see them live. I got to see Psychic TV. I got to see Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, and just... I was like, yeah, <sighs> fabulous. Wow. Circling back
1: in to... Uh to New York, as, sorry, to America as a segue into our next track. Can you can you paint a picture of, of young Ravi driving uh, <laughs> from London to New York across America and, and, yeah, this, and, and reintroduce us to, to Rush, the big audio dynamite song?
0: Yeah, look, I had 10 days to get from Los Angeles to New York and I thought that was plenty of time. So I just made a list of cities I wanted to see on the way and just drove this squiggly route with... Uh, listening to like funk and R&B and country and western, what is it, whatever was on the AM radio. When there was nothing on the AM radio, I put on big audio dynamite, and this is the kind of stuff I was listening to. Yeah. <laughs>
2: somehow. Now win. Rush for the changes.
1: Hey, in the late 80s, that was Rush by Big Audio Dynamite, courtesy of entrepreneur, activist, refugee-run cafe owner, and my out-of-the-box guest, <laughs> <laughs> Ravi Prasad. Ravi, in your early 20s, you settled down in Sydney. You'd gotten yourself a communications degree, but you decided that you didn't want to try your luck as a journo. Why not?
0: <laughs> I didn't get my communications. man, you're talking to someone that's dropped out of law, communications, arts. Everything. I didn't. I... I, I, I... I turned up out of I turned up to do my degree out of out of high school because I just you know go to uni or get a job, but you know I just couldn't see my like you know I couldn't see a vision for myself doing anything. It's like I hadn't found like you know what I said before about trying to find my people. I didn't I I didn't have an idea of what my thing was, and I thought I, I just got to see things and do things and and try and find out what it is that I really love and that I can be good at. So uh, that's why, and it's why I enrolled in stuff and dropped out and stuff. I was just trying to find my thing. Um, Advertising was a bit like that. It's like when I I arrived back in Sydney, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know what I didn't want to do. So instead of being able to do what I wanted to do, I did what I, I didn't do what I didn't want to do, which I think was probably good advice for anyone. If you don't know what you want to do, just don't do what you don't want to do. Yeah. But uh, I knew I liked project-based things. I knew I liked, uh, I liked writing. I liked uh, visual communication. arts. I met this girl and uh front of my friend Crispin's, I'm trying to remember her name, she was really smart, just a lovely woman. And she had a job at K&D Bond Direct as a copywriter and I thought, I can, if you can do that, I can do that. Because so, uh, before before
1: you'd gotten to copywriting and uh, into the the big bad world of advertising, you'd had a brief stint as an
0: actor. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. look. So I, I come back from from my trip, and you know I'm in showbiz now. I've worked on films and film sets and stuff. So, <laughs> and somehow I met this guy. This fantastic character. He's still around. He's a very clever, generous man. John Summer, an acting agency called Big Drama, and he said, oh, "I'll get you some acting work." So uh, he. Set about doing so, and did. I ended up in all sorts of things, like uh, I'm in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I had some speaking roles. I was on an episode of GP, playing opposite Steve Bisley which was a big deal for me because I, I, loved him in Mad Max. So I was always wow. a fan.
1: Can I ask you? Can I? Can mm. I ask you about Priscilla? What?
0: What was that? What was the scene that you were you were in? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was in a in a in a in a bar scene at the Imperial, but I dragged a few of my friends along. Uh, with me, and it was good. It was well, what was it like? Did, when people were creating Priscilla,
1: was there a, a knowing... Did people realise what it was going to be? Did people realise that it was going to be the cultural sensation that it became?
0: At the beginning, nobody did, but it was well into production after a um, big drive. been supplying extras for a while. Someone said to me, this film's really a special film. This is going to be a special film. You've got to get yourself... On set, and that's why I did clearly during the production of the film, it became clear that something really beautiful and special was taking shape. Wow! Uh,
1: so, if I very carefully rewatch Pre Silicon <laughs> the Desert and look at one particular scene with Hugo weaving at the Imperial, yeah. I'll be able to spot the yeah, face of you'll of be able spot me there. You have to look carefully, part of Australian history. <laughs> uh, you eventually moved from acting into animatronics on a Japanese TV series <laughs> called Ultraman that was being
0: created in the city. It, 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 firstly, what is animatronics? Uh, look if you So if you look at an episode of Ultraman or any of those Japanese sci-fi shows, you see these big rubber monsters. Inside that rubber monster is a person moving that rubber monster around. And inside Ultraman, I was inside those rubber monsters, moving those rubber monsters around. And it's really fascinating because these big, heavy things, and there's there's levers and wires and devices, and you're pulling these things to make it move and bouncing. The sh- to, because they're meant to be big monsters, but actually small, they shoot at super high speeds. So on these... Uh, these uh, uh, there are sr two cameras. They had these high speed magazines, and they were feeding sixteen millimeter film through at something like two hundred frames or two hundred fifty frames a second. So the ca- so a camera roll would last like a couple of minutes, and the whole thing was screaming this huge amount of noise. Because it was uh, high speed, they had to put a lot of light. So you're getting, you know, you'll have like you know, fifty thousand watts of, of, of light. So the thing is baking. The camera is screaming. You're inside this rubber dinosaur, sweating like a pig, while someone's shooting pyrotechnics <laughs> at you. Are what you... could possibly go wrong? Well, I did catch fire at one point in time, really? but it was just small. My overalls had caught fire. But you're under there in safety gear and a respirator, with pyrotechnics being shot at you, while it's screaming. Fire. <laughs> <laughs> but an an exciting uh,
1: story nonetheless. Yeah,
0: well, and he met some fabulous people. There's this guy I met, his name's Rowan Smith. He was at film, film school in the process. And, and uh, he was doing his final project. It was an animation called Two Fish. And uh, I convinced him that I could animate it, and, uh, and I did. So I got to work as a, as a 3D animator using just plasticine uh, for a while. And that was great. That got uh, uh, Rowan um, a Best uh, Animation nomination at the AFI Awards that year. Wow. So, sometime amidst the fun,
1: uh, your partner at the time falls pregnant uh, with your first child, your your eldest son. Uh, and this triggers you, as you mentioned, mm. to move into advertising. Tell me about the world of advertising and, and what it represented for you.
0: Uh, oh, yeah, well, it goes back to the, my friend Kay. It's like, so I had, you know, I had, I don't know if I had any real skills and I not think I had any real world skills at all. I knew i needed to support and look after a child and a partner and i had to be uh, responsible so i was just figuring out what i could do so i was, i got some shitty call center jobs and a role, enrolled in something called a, um awards school and i you know i did okay and i managed to talk my way into a, my first full time paid job as a copywriter before I awarded even finished actually for what it finished but they had this thing called master class at the end so I, before that had finished I managed to get my first job as a copywriter
1: and this was almost 20 years
0: <laughs> what what was it no, uh, y- it was you, 20 you, that would be tw- my son's 24 so it was just before he was born so it would have been it would have been 24 25 years ago you yeah. y- you mentioned to me that that you found advertising particularly unsatisfying what what was it about about that, oh, it's not it's. I, 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 don't think it matters what you do. I don't. It, you know, I, there's no such thing as a good job or a bad job, and there's no such thing as, I, I if just for me, after a while, it stopped being satisfying. It stopped being satisfying. There was something missing, and I couldn't see the positive things. I just saw how vapid and empty it was, and how empty it left me feeling. It was, it was very hard. I mean. To succeed over the long term in uh, a large agency and in that culture, you have to be very hard and very tough, and you have to work incredibly hard. Like The the guys that do that job, they do work incredibly hard, Um, but there was a a toughness in it that didn't appeal to me, but also it left me feeling empty. Um, It took a while before I realised what that feeling was and what that was connected to. It would be remiss of me, Ravi Prasad, to finish
1: this section without asking about the night you went drinking with cultural icon uh, and the inventor of the drug LSD, Timothy Leary, (laughs) in Glee. Can you talk me through that?
0: Okay. Look, this is a slightly more complicated conversation just Timothy Leary, right? So when I was growing up, I had this sense that I was nobody and I was growing up nowhere, this little city on the edge of the world. And I wasn't anybody. So I had this, like, I want to feel connected to my time and my place in history. So that's why I kind of sought out situations and people that would connect me to history. And when Timothy Leary was coming to town to speak on behalf of some tech company, he was doing this small speaking engagement at the Harold Park Hotel. I thought I'd go along and just see him speak so I could say, oh, I met Timothy Leary. And that's how I ended up meeting Noam Chomsky and a few other people that way as well. But. Um, and so after he was speaking, he came out to get a drink, and th- his entourage, there was nobody there. He just walked up to the bar and stayed at the bar alone, and the bar staff didn't see him speak. They were in the bar. They didn't know who he was. So I went up to him just to go, like, can I buy you a drink? So I bought him a drink. and We started talking. I was with my friend Ante Androvic, and we sat and talked to, to Timothy Leary for about half an hour, 45 minutes alone, then other people started coming up. but. Because we were the first there, he sort of stuck with us for the duration of the evening and mm. all, so I, Timothy Leary, my friend Tone and I just got hammered at a, the Harald Park <laughs> Hotel <one night. laughs> Do you remember what you were speaking about? i got no idea. I, mean, I think I was a sci-fi fan and he was talking about technology, so we ended up talking about science fiction and science fiction stories and books and movies and stuff. So I think that was certainly a topic of conversation, only one I remember. Mm. What are you going to play for us now, Ravi? Oh look. <laughs> I, this is uh this is Tomorrow by um, Brian Ferry. Yeah.
1: Fairy, and this is tomorrow. And you are listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5 and wherever and whenever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Ravi Prasad. Ravi, almost eight years ago, your daughter was born with some very severe health conditions, a moment which set the trajectory for the rest of your life. Can you tell me what happened?
0: Sure. Look, there's a a little bit of backstory to this, right? Like, so two things. First of all is like some people don't need a cathartic moment in their life to change and to do something better or to pursue something that fulfills them. I was one of these people that did. There was so much inertia in my life that without something cathartic I'd still be in advertising. Um, I'd also at that point in time figured out what was missing uh, in my life. Um, do you want me to Talk about that or just... Please, yeah. What was that? What was missing? Maybe? Okay. So, you know, it's like I was I was very lucky with my career in advertising, really lucky. And uh, I just kept going. It kept working. And by the time my daughter was... Just before my daughter was born, I was working as a strategist, right? So I went back to uni to do my master's in, in marketing at UTS and reinvented my career in advertising as a strategist and got a gig as a strategist before I'd even finished uni I got this job with an agency group called Clemenger BBDO as head of digital strategy for Australia based here in Sydney and if you're doing strategy and digital strategy that's like wow that's for me that was like that's it man but I got there to that job that was you know the it job and there was nothing there I didn't feel happier I didn't feel better and at that time I, I got the job I realised the what it was, and it was this old quote, and the the quote was, um, it's a Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, and it was, the meaning of life is to be useful. And it's not just Emerson, I mean, many wise men and women have said that throughout history, but that was his quote. And I thought, that's what's wrong, I'm not useful, I'm not living a useful life, I'm taking and taking and taking, I'm consuming and consuming and consuming, I'm giving back very, very little, I'm actually probably not giving back anything and i'd felt kind of empty and i realized that was why i was just being i wasn't living a useful life i was living a useless life um maybe not in the life of my children and wife and partner and friends but in terms of the world so when my daughter got sick just after she was born and it was a week before a doctor would say you can your daughter's going to be okay and you can take her home but for a week my wife and i would turn up and look at our little baby girl in this humidity crib, and reach in and hold her hand, and there were like shunts in both arms and and both of her legs. They kept one, the next one shunt in one of the legs, even though they weren't using it, just so as a spare shunt. And I'm going, I, oh, oh, oh. I was looking at this my beautiful woman I was married to, my partner Della, going, oh God, a clear sense then of what's important. And there was a moment there when you watched her stop breathing. Oh, God. Yeah, just after she was born, she stopped breathing. She made this little squeal and stopped. And someone pressed a button, and all of a sudden there were like 12 doctors and technicians in there resuscitating my little girl. It was terrifying. What,
1: What was going through your head in that moment?
0: I thought to myself, and I'm looking at my wife still in bed, exhausted, and I'm thinking to myself, am I watching my baby girl die? That's what I really thought, and it was... Not a moment i wish on anybody, but she didn't. And it's a happy story. You look at it now, she's just like indestructible eight-year-old, well, nearly eight-year-old girl. And it worked out fine, had a happy ending. And the great thing was just after I'd got back to work, I was made redundant at Cleminger, and I just thought, I'm done. I'm not going to ever have another full-time job in advertising. So I just committed myself to freelancing and thought I'd try... Starting a few things up, and then you know we'd or we'd already thought about buying this shop and doing a little cafe thing, and so that plan was already underway in my mind. I thought that's what we're gonna do. That's what I'm gonna do.
1: And w- what what sort of how does that, an experience like that with
0: a child at such an early age does that affect what sort of father you are? Or I have no idea because I like. You can't pair real, compare experiences like that, I don't think. Sure. Uh, it's certainly, I, I don't know if what that changed or what, what would have been different if that hadn't happened. And there's this rec- recurrent
1: theme in your life of you wanting to, or, or striving to find your people, or mm. not knowing where you fit in. Do, ha- how has fatherhood affected that? Has that been part of that
0: journey for you? Uh, <clears throat> uh, perhaps. But, you know... Uh, perhaps it has. But I've, I feel like in doing this thing at Parliament on King, and and m- 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 with my my partner Della, that I've found my people, and my people have found me, and I feel, um, I feel connected, and I feel useful, and I feel happy. I've never been as happy because I.
1: I want to ask you about Parliament on King in a lot of detail, mm-hmm. but before that. Let's have some music What are you going to play For us now, right um,
0: now? Okay So is <clears throat> a song I used to play a lot When my son was born My oldest son I used to put this On the record player I used to hold him In my arms And dance around With him to make him happy Listening to it When my daughter was born I played the same song And danced with her It's uh, The Beach Boys Let's do it again
3: It's on
1: Song was the Beach Boys. It was "Do It Again," and it was in your ear, courtesy of activist cafe owner and my guest on Out of the Box on FBI Radio ninety four point five, Ravi Prasad. Ravi, about eight years ago, riddled with uh, existential angst, perhaps <laughs> you get council approval to open a cafe in the living room of your house on South King Street in Newtown, mm-hmm. in the inner city, in inner city Sydney. Did you know anything about hospitality before mm-hmm. you opened?
0: No, no. Look, man, I I was like driving across America. How hard can this be? (laughs) It's like I didn't know anything. The amount of stuff I had to learn to get that place open, it was just, it was pretty crazy. Tell me about that process. I mean, was was it a headache? Was it a bureaucratic (laughs) headache? The infrastructure itself? Well, it's like, you know, essentially... Because it's a shop front, like it's a proper shop front on King Street, but it hadn't been used f- for commercial purposes since like no, the early 80s. And going through council, and they're going, you, you, essentially, it was like, you're Ravi, you're asking us to give you a us council permission to open a cafe in your living room and that's basically what it was it's been used as a living room and for the last whatever and then when it came to doing the liquor license they said basically the same thing you want us to approve a liquor license for your lounge room (laughs) Um, yeah it took forever to get it open but uh, we did you know there's a story about this Oh, in the in the cafe, if you come, have you seen the Vespa in the cafe? I have seen the Vespa. Yeah. This is your this
1: is your motorcycle. Right, this is yeah. your mode of transportation, right? You actually
0: wrote it here today. But when my wife and I were courting, we used to ride around Surrey Hills and we look at we'd corner shops. And this is when I had my corporate gig and she was had some corporate gig as well. And we look at these corner shops and these terraces with shops on them. We said one day we're going to buy one and we're going to open a cafe. We'll open it on Sundays. We'll keep our, you know, our corporate shops. on Sunday. We'll run a cafe bookshop. So that's where it came from. It's this like this whimsical, romantic notion of just running a Sunday bookshop uh, together and having children. Desmond, Molly Jones. It's like you know, it's like a just a romantic idea. Yeah. <laughs>
1: How did the idea to start training refugees in hospitality come about? Ah, oh,
0: look down there. The, the Carmen and King. It was never going to make any money. It's really. It's like. The lonely end of King Street, on the unfashionable side of the road, next to like um, uh, a colonic irrigation place, a furniture <laughs> place, and two hairdressers. So it was only ever going to be a hobby. And I thought, well, if it doesn't have to make money, why don't we just use that space to do things that are useful to us and to the community, and use it as like a third space? So it works as a cafe, and it, you know we can buy coffee and food and and, and 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 drinks, and there's bands and music and other things, but. Really the intention it wasn't to make money, it was just to do it for the love of it. So um, I was listening to the, and as you know I was interested in, in uh, race, race relations and civil society. I'm listening to the, uh, the the social, political and the media discourse around asylum seekers and refugees and I'm looking at those racial dynamics playing out and I thought I can I can be useful here. So. I also managed to pick up a a qualification as a trainer. Went, put together a training curriculum, went to the asylum Seekers centre, had a lot of conversations. Um, Then we started training asylum seekers and refugees in hospitality schools in the cafe, and that's how everything started. Just training one day a week then became two days a week, and then the community dinners, and then as a way of funding it all. uh, As a way of funding it all. I was still freelancing, so I was subsidising the cost of everything or covering the cost of everything through my professional work. Then the community dinners were working, so I had an idea that maybe we could start a catering business to subsidise the cost of everything that I was doing, take some of the weight off my shoulders. So that's how that all sort of came together over a period of five, six years.
1: And now you've had hundreds of refugees and asylum seekers Mm. come through since, Um, and there are ample uh, different characters that we could speak about but i w- wanted to ask you specifically about an iraqi woman who ended up being the first of her almost entire extended family to come <laughs> through because i, I think nothing uh, <laughs> illustrates the impact of the campaign more than more than this one
0: well this is a good story because people I trying to figure out how effective is this? is this working is this important so we had this one girl come like top, most glamorous thing you've ever seen name's Viv, and she comes and does the cafe training and she's great. And I said, Well, do you want to do some work with the catering? She said, Yeah, I can cook. So she starts working in the catering. And the food's brilliant. And then she said, You know, you're really going to meet my sister, Mathil. Mathil's fantastic. So Mathil starts coming. Mathil said, Look, you're really going to like my mum, uh, uh, Ida, because she's taught us to cook, so Ida starts coming. Then some of her brother starts coming. And then her uh, Matthew's fiancé is granted a, a refugee status in Australia, so he comes and he starts working. Then the dad <laughs> starts working. So we get these community dinners, these Iraqi community dinners, which basically the whole family have taken over our place. So uh, it's, yeah, it's the mum introducing this the sister introducing, the sister introducing, the brother introducing, the, the, the brother-in-law introducing, the mum introducing, the dad introducing, the brother. it's fantastic. Um, and they're still friends of ours. They're actually running the, uh, the uh, Four Brave Women uh, uh, space out at uh, Dulwich Hill if you want to go out there and eat their food. Wow. Um, and they're doing really well. So from that, they've gone on to basically starting their own catering business and that they'll start their own restaurant. One of the projects Della and I are talking about is like, is there a, somewhere we can help them with that over the coming years? Sure. And and tell me, do, hmm. do you,
1: I mean, it's obviously over a six-week training uh, period with some uh, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Do you develop a connection with them, a, a lasting connection with these people?
0: Uh, some of them, like there are some people that, that I work with now. Like, you know, if you come into the cafe on uh, Saturday, you'll meet Hani. Hani um, runs the cafe. She also runs, like, she manages the floor for dinners and stuff. But I actually met her three and a half years ago or something when she came in to do a hospitality training at the cafe. And so, three and a half years later, we're still friends. But it's flipped. So, it started out me doing, trying to do something for Hani backwards now man so the last two years it's her doing stuff for me like when we go away she looks after a house she feeds the cats, she orders the plants mm-hmm. um she yeah, it's it's gone from us trying to help those guys to those a lot of those guys helping uh look after us and that's kind of beautiful and
1: you said that at parliament uh the headlines are given a human dimension <laughs> can you talk me through what you mean by that Oh, I don't know what I mean by that. I say a lot of stuff. Just... <laughs> well, I mean, so, something to the effect of uh, you're dealing with people that uh, have come from um, you know war zones, tra- tra- trauma around the world, um, and they are the lived experience of, mm-hmm. of the news and world world events. Do, yeah. you, do you feel that? Is that something you feel?
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting when you 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 read in the paper about the bombs falling in Syria, and then you talk to a young woman that's talking about her grandmother, and they're trapped in Syria or um, uh, violence in uh, in uh, toward the Rohingya in Myanmar, and one of our chefs is going, my grandparents' street was on fire last night. So it brings you all of a sudden those things that happen around the world aren't happening to strangers in remote places they're happening to people that you know and care about and love that are there uh, in, in your house with you. Ravi, mm. you've spent your life as an outsider
1: in some way or another <laughs> mm. do you feel like you've found your people now? Yeah, absolutely Like
0: I, I, st- I still feel, I always feel like I'm happy to be an outsider, I think that's great but I... Like I feel like I belong somewhere, and I feel like I'm useful, and I feel like I'm part of something, and I'm happy. <laughs> what are you going to play us out with, Ravi? Um, oh, it's, it's one of those happy, optimistic, melancholy songs, and it's, um, at, it's called Dry the Rain by the Beta Band. Thanks for having me. Ravi Russell. thank you very much for being my guest and <laughs> Out of the Box.